is a second loneliness, you could call it that way. And maybe it is precisely the fact that you have found a home and feel deeply loved. There is still a hole when you have found a home. Pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together. We have to understand that we're not each other's enemy. We have to say, let's move forward. It can feel daunting to not be perfect when you've got all these like perfect people. People aren't perfect, no one's perfect. So, we're on our series of Significant, right? And so when Craig told me about the series, uh, there was one thing that came to my mind immediately, and it's a character from a movie, and it is arguably the best movie of the 1990s, potentially of all time. It's a movie about uh, human ambition and the struggle to survive and push through difficulty at any cost as we bind together as a family. Uh, the film is called Independence Day. Um, <laughs> It's really good. All right, so maybe it's not as classy as I described it. Maybe it's just about aliens blowing up America, but it's awesome, right? And at the end of this film, there is the best speech that has ever been put to film that's been scientifically proven in multiple studies. It's the speech when the U.S. president gets up. And so the whole U.S. has been destroyed by these aliens who've only targeted the national icons and not the rest of the city for some odd reason. And so he gets up on this, the back of this car, this back of this Jeep, and he's got a megaphone and the troops and everyone around him is sad and depressed. And there's this moment where he needs to galvanize them and send them forward to fight the evil aliens. It's really deep and theological, I promise you. Um, so he gets up and he grabs this megaphone and he puts it up to his mouth and he's like, good morning. Oh. I could repeat the whole speech for you because it's that great, but I won't. You can watch it online or in a video later. But it's this incredible speech, and as he gives it, you're so excited because we're not just fighting for our independence, we're fighting for our survival. Yeah! And he finishes the speech, he's like, this is our Independence Day! And the crowd goes nuts. Like, all these soldiers, like, throw up their hands and shout and lift, you know, lift their voices. And my favorite thing about that scene isn't actually the speech, it's what happens right after the speech. Because as people are celebrating, the camera focuses, focuses in on a bunch of different people, but two characters in particular always just make my day. The first character is this soldier who's standing off to the side of the middle of the crowd, sticks straight and is like, mm, like way too over-enthusiastically like salutes to a president on a jeep. And then the other guy is a guy who's sitting there with an assault rifle in his arm and just goes and just starts unloading this assault rifle in the middle of the crowd. There are huge questions as to why you would need an assault rifle in a speech. Huge questions about what significance that would have against alien ships that have force field technology. But he shoots his assault rifle all the same. And so whenever I watch this film, deep down inside me I think, oh, I want to be like that President Day. I want to get up onto that Jeep and grab the megaphone and give this speech that just leaves everyone like, yes, we can do it. I want to be this significant character in the story. But the reality is, is if I was really in the movie and this was really happening, I'm way more likely to be the over-enthusiastic soldier or the moron who's shooting a firearm in a crowd of people. 
Or even most likely, I'm probably just some, guy, some unnamed cast member who gets destroyed in the first wave of alien attacks. And there's this difficulty when we see words about significance and when we think about what it means to be significant. We desperately want to be the significant one, but we're faced with the reality that most of us won't be the president who get on the back of a Jeep and make the speech. Most of us won't be that lead character who sends the winning shot. Most of us will probably just be moms, dads, uncles, aunties, working to pay a mortgage, working to keep bills ticking over, maybe have a holiday once a year. So we've got this ideal of what we would love to be, and then there's this reality that's so different. And our society longs for significance. You have a whole range of reality TV shows set up just for that. You have The X Factor, where you go and you prove yourself, and you can become this significant, amazing singer on the world stage. Or if you're a cook, you can go into MasterChef, and you can rise to the tops and be discovered and make it to this huge master stage. But the difficulty is, is that's one out of millions and millions, and the reality is most of us won't be the president or be the master chef. So what, what does scripture have to say to that? How do we, how do we balance that, that dream with that reality? So today we're going to look at one of my favorite characters in scripture. Um, his name is Simeon. Now, Simeon's not super well-known. He only shows up in a handful of verses. But as we look through his story today, I think his story has a lot of relevance for what it means to be significant in the kingdom of God. So we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 2, reading verses 22 through 35. And it says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. For as it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem who's called Simeon, and he was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when, in the, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the law required, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory for your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your scripture, and as we read your words, and as we study your story and your interaction with this man, Simeon, we pray that you would bring things to light within us. You would reveal to us our own ambitions, our own fears, our own insecurities, and that you would use this word to transform us more into your likeness. Amen. 
So what does someone like Simeon, who only shows up for a handful of verses and then disappears from Scripture, never to be heard of again, have to say to us about significance? Now, there are three things I want us to look at today, because these three things that Simeon embodies are so different from what the world values, and it'll help us redefine significance in light of Christ. So the first thing is faithfulness. I have a yearly tradition. Uh, Since coming to New Zealand, I have discovered your wonderful dessert that is called ambrosia. Never had it before, but dessert of the gods is an apt name. And so every year it happens, Christmas comes around and someone makes the ambrosia and I eat all of the ambrosia. It doesn't matter how much food I've had, I will continue to eat it until it is all gone. And so every year I eat all of the ambrosia and then New Year's comes and I eat more ambrosia and then the day after New Year's comes, I feel like a terrible human being. I have had way too much cream and it's oozing out of my very pores. And so I think I need to do something about this. I'm unhealthy and I need to get fit. So every year this happens, after New Year's and in the ambrosia, I decide I'm gonna get fit. So I decide one day I'm gonna start working out. So I wake up in the morning and I do 15 push-ups because that is the full extent of my ability and I can go no further. And then I go for a 15 minute run until it feels like my lungs are literally falling out of my mouth. And I think, who runs for fun? You're crazy. And then I go home and I do 15 crunches, because again, that is the full scale of my ability in working out. And I feel really good about myself. And so then the next day, I do the same thing. Wake up, 15 push-ups, 15 minutes run, hate everyone who's ever run, and then do 15 crunches, and then feel better about myself. And on the third day, it happens again, but this time I wake up, and after doing all this, I go into the mirror, and I lift up my shirt, ready for the six-pack that is sure to be there, But every year it's not. Surely you think for all the pain that I have endured, there must be some change. But I feel like I'm flabbier than I was when I started this process. It's It's not fair because every year I expect that if I do something, results should come quickly. If something is worth doing, then the results are gonna happen really, really fast. Before I came here to New Zealand, I was in the UK working with Youth with a Mission. And part of the thing I did with Youth with Mission is I was in a band. And so we traveled and we played gigs all over, um, all over England and Scotland and Wales. And we would meet all these different bands. And it was heartbreaking because with every new band, you'd have the same conversation. This new band would get together and they were convinced that they were writing the best music that had ever been written. No one's written music like this new band. And so they'd played a gig and they'd gotten like 20 people there and they were stoked. They're like, yes, guys, look at all this hype we've got. So then they record a YouTube video of themselves and they put it online and you have this conversation. They're like, guys, we're about to be discovered. Can you imagine when we're going to hit it big? Someone's going to see this and they're going to go crazy and we're going to be touring all over the world. Because they had this idea that if something's worth doing and if it's good, then it'll become significant big. It'll happen quickly. And it was just heartbreaking to have to lead them through the discussion of being like, how's your second gig gone? Like, oh, 10 people. How's your third gig? Oh, no one was there except for the sound guy. That's depressing. How's your YouTube gone? Oh, we got a few views. Is it honestly just the views of your band looking at your own video? Yes. You know? And they would be so dejected because they believed that if something is worth doing, then it'll happen quickly. We should do it fast and then results will come around. And we think the same thing too. They they'd thought that just if they put a YouTube video, they'll get big. I mean, if a lady can put a Chewbacca mask and end up on Ellen in like three days, then surely a band with good music should end up on Ellen in like four days. Maybe we'll give it an extra day for grace period. 
But society has this myth that if something is worth doing, then you can do it for a short time and results will follow. And if results aren't following, then you should stop doing what you're doing because it doesn't matter anymore. In light of this, Simeon looks so drastically, drastically different. When we come across him in this story, Simeon is probably going to, he's pretty old, uh, roughly around like 50s, 60s, which for that time was quite old. And he could pass away um, quite soon because healthcare wasn't so great under the Roman occupation, as you would assume. And so when Simeon, when Simeon was born, it was likely right after, it was the season in Israel where they had rebelled against the Greek overlords and they had won their independence and they were so excited to be a Jewish state again. But right around Simeon was born, the Romans came through and just decimated them, took over the country, put new leadership in, and subjected them to terrible taxes, a horrible military occupation, and everything they do had to be run through Roman means. And so Israel was hoping for this Messiah, this political leader who would come and raise up a revolt against the Romans and set Israel free from the obvious painful occupation that they were enduring. So when it says that Simeon was awaiting the consolation of Israel, he's looking forward to this freedom for his people. But he has lived his entire life under the shadow of Roman occupation. His entire life, everything he's believed, everything he's hoped for, has looked completely false. But how does scripture define Simeon? Bitter? Uh, gave up? Walked away from it all? Um, tried to raise in his, his own uprising? No. Simeon is described as righteous and devout, still faithfully waiting for the consolation of Israel after all of those years, still waiting that despite all the evidence in front of his eyes and despite the world and the Roman occupation saying, this is never going to change, our rule is here forever, you better just get used to it, Simeon continued to be faithful. Because even though those results didn't come quickly, and even though he didn't see the change that he wanted to as soon as he wanted it, he kept walking faithfully. Society doesn't value long, patient faithfulness. But in the kingdom of God, it is incredibly significant. And Simeon would have never been in the story had he not continued to hope and to walk faithfully with God. The next thing about Simeon that I really like is there's this dependence that he has. Uh, like I mentioned, I was in Youth with a Mission for a while. And so one of the things that I did with Youth, youth with a Mission is why um, I owned a ship in the Mediterranean that went and did like ministry in all these different towns and did medical aid. And so I was going to go to the ship and kind of help lead a team while, while they were there. And so I needed to go to the ship, which at the moment was in the south coast of France. And so I had done, I mean, to be fair, I was 20 and planning is not necessarily high on my skill set. So all I'd done is I'd booked the ticket, a plane ticket, to the city where the ship was. And I thought that was fine. Until the night before, someone says, hey, so do you know where the ship is? And I said, yeah, it's in the city. And they're like, well, I know that, but do you know where the ship is? Uh, in the water? <laughs> they're like, should you call them? So I tried to call them, but it's a ship. You can't, like, get a hold of, you can't just Facebook people on a ship at, the, at that time. They they didn't have a whole lot of fancy mobile phones to Facebook them. So I couldn't get in touch with them. So I got on the plane and I flew to this city in France, thinking, surely it's water. So if I just find the water, I'll be able to find the ship eventually, right? Not realizing that this is a big city. So I walk out of the train station out of the airport um, with my guitar and my suitcase in tow. And 
I look around, and there's this, just, this massive metropolis all around me. And I have no idea where this ship is. And it's about five o'clock in the evening, and I'm this lone white guy with a guitar who's saying, steal my stuff, please, right? And so I think, well, what do I do? What, what do you do? So what do you do when you don't plan, and you don't prepare, and you've got nothing else to do, and you need a Hail Mary? You pray. So I prayed and said, okay, God, help me find this ship because I don't want to die, um, and please lead me. Where should I go? And as I'm standing outside of this train station, um, the only thing I can I, I sense, or maybe God is just saying th- this phrase, just go, keep going straight, which makes sense because that's the way I'm facing. So I think, okay, fine, I'll go straight. So I just keep, start walking on this road into the city. And as I'm walking, I come to this junction and on the right, I can see water. And I think, oh, water, ship, ships live in water. I'm going to go to the water. So as I turn, I just sense within me, I feel like God is still saying, no, just keep going straight. And I look straight, and it's just city for ages, and on the right is water. So clearly, I'm not hearing God right, or God is not as good at knowing directions or the systems of boats as I am. So I turn to the right and walk towards the water, and to my dismay, realize that it's not just a city on the coast, but it's a city with hundreds of inlets and fjords and rivers running up through the city, which means the location the ship could be is now anywhere in a city. It's not like just near the ocean. It's everywhere. And so now I panic, and so I just start walking around lost, following all these different canals and following water. And I spend about two, two and a half hours walking everywhere, and now the sun has set, and I'm lost with my guitar in my suitcase and a sign that says, steal my stuff and kill me because no one will follow. And I I don't know what to do. So after walking for two hours, again, I pray and think, well, God, you were rubbish at those directions before, but I'll give you a second chance. Um... Which way do I go? How do I find this ship? Please lead me. And so where I was standing, there were two options. I could go this way, and this way followed some water that went around a bend, and I couldn't see what happened there. And this way was this sketchy-as alleyway with no lighting and death looming around every corner. And so I've got to decide, do I follow the water, or do I go into the valley of the shadow of death, where surely I shall be shanked? I don't know which way to go. And so as I'm praying, like, God, which way do I go? I just sense go down the alleyway, to which I think that's a stupid idea. I'm going to go down and follow the water. But I just still sense, you just got to go go down the alleyway. And so I I make a deal with God and I say, fine, I'll go down the alleyway. But if I die, it's your fault, right? Just as, as long as we're all clear, I'm getting martyred right now. This is what is happening. And so I walk through this alleyway with fear and trepidation. And as I come through... I kid you not, the alleyway is maybe 20, 20, 30 meters long. I come out the other side of the alleyway, and right in front of me is the YWAM ship. Literally right in front of me. To which I think, (laughs) found it, God. (laughs) So I, I get onto this ship thankful that I'm not dead and that there's food and I've got somewhere to sleep. And while I'm on the ship, I'm just asking the people there out of curiosity. Um, so just wondering, where's the train station in relation to the, the ship? How do I... How do I get to the train station? I said, oh, it's super easy to get to. This road right out here, just go straight the whole way. No turns, and you'll end up right at the train station. (laughs) And what it shows is that there's this desperate drive within us to be independent and to do things our own way. 
Whenever you see things change or when trials come or when difficulties come, you got problems with your job or finances or issues with your family, there is this drive within us that says, I've got to fix this. I've got to make this happen. I know the right way to go. I've got to do something. And part of the reason that that is is because I believe our society loves independence. I would go so far as to say is our culture worships independence. The people that we value most are those who are rich and powerful, who don't need anyone for anything. Our society defines freedoms, freedom is having no connections, no, no relationships that hold you back, no financial ties that hold you down. Freedom is being able to blow wherever the wind might lead you. And freedom is found in independence. I think it's part of the reason why in the media and in news, when you hear politicians talking, there's this natural frustration or this natural fear or prejudice against those who are on the benefit because they represent to us the loss of independence, which is a terrifying thing. It's the same reason, I think, that we're so afraid when we become older, for those of us who know people who are elderly, that we might have to go into a rest home because we will lose our independence. It becomes the greatest fear, a monkey weighing on our back. If I am not independent, I have lost everything. There is no way I can be significant if I'm dependent upon people. But what does Simeon say? What happens with Simeon? In these few verses, just these few, few verses, so many times it talks about Simeon's dependence upon God. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit. Moved by the Spirit, Simeon goes to temple. By the Spirit, Simeon lifts up the baby and prophesies. Again and again and again and again and again, Simeon is led by the Spirit. He wouldn't have been there had it not been for the Spirit. He would not have been able to know who Jesus was if it were not for the Spirit. In this whole passage, Simeon is the passive member of what's happening. God has told him to go, so he obeys. God has told him what Jesus was like, so he listens. God tells him what to say, so he speaks. This is not someone who's independent, who's making his own way, who's cutting his mark through the story. This is someone who's so reliant upon God for anything. And it's not just reliance upon God. If you look at the wider story, right after this strange scene where this eccentric old man grabs some stranger's baby and lifts it up and sings a song of praise to God, naturally this was weird, so it gathered a crowd. And a group of people came and stood around Jesus, Mary, and Joseph while this crazy old man lifted up a baby. And so what happens, though, in this story is that Simeon says some stuff to Mary and Joseph that is really important to them. But another character comes onto the scene and takes it from where he left off to this woman named Anna, who'd been in the temple for, her whole, for, for many, many years after she'd been widowed. She picks up where Simeon left off, takes this crowd that he has gathered, and uses it as an opportunity to preach about who Jesus is to the people who are now there. See, even within the context of the story, Simeon did not accomplish these things by himself, but he needed others. He needed the body of Christ to help get him there. And the truth is God calls us to be the same. While society views significance as being able to do whatever you want when you want, cut your own path, be the manager of your own story, in the kingdom of God that has all changed, significance is found in being dependent upon God. Scripture talks about in Jesus Christ, in whom we live, we move, and have our being. We sing songs that it's the very breath in our lungs that is yours that we breathe, and so we pour out praises to you because you sustain us. 
And equally then Paul talks about it, the body of Christ, this picture where we need one another. The hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. The eye cannot say to the ear, I don't need you. So as much as it makes us uncomfortable with the thought of needing other people within the kingdom of God, we need other people. And we need God. Significance in Christ is dependence upon him and his body, not in making our own way. So the third thing that Simeon really speaks to us about is contentedness. A recent study has been done uh, where they surveyed people who were millionaires. They had between one and five million dollars in investable assets. And they asked them a simple question. How many of you would consider yourselves wealthy? How many, how many do you think it was? The percentage was surprisingly low. Only 28%, one and four people, would have said that they were wealthy. People with millions and millions and millions of dollars would not say that they had enough. There wasn't enough wealth for them to be considered wealthy at this stage. Uh, Apple in January, um, most of us have iPhones or have interacted with Apple products at some point. Um, Apple released this really interesting thing. For the first time in eight years, since the iPhone was invented and sold, for the first time in eight years, sales have dipped. So they've been growing consistently for eight years, and for once, it dipped. And the world freaked out. Everybody lost it. So people started selling their stocks immediately. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles online saying, is this the end of Apple? Have they come to the end? Will they ever come back from this? It was like Apple had just lost all of their money. And to be honest, they had. So many people had sold stocks, the amount of money lost by the drop in stock prices was $47 billion because they didn't show a growth in one quarter. So what was this horrible number? What was this abysmal sale that, the Apple, uh, that Apple sold? What was this terrible financial gain that they brought in? $50 billion. They made $50 billion in one quarter, and it was viewed as the death of Apple, because for the first time, they didn't get more than they had before. Society is programmed with these statements. You know them. If we're not living, we're dying. If you're not moving forwards, you're moving backwards. If you're not growing, you're dying. There's this view of where contentedness does not even factor into this worldview. You always need more, 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 more. But Simeon was so different. He spends his whole life waiting for this one thing, the consolation of Israel. This whole life waiting, and all he sees is a baby. And what do you hear him say? No, that was a waste. You didn't even do what I wanted. Oh, that's a baby. What's going to happen through this? Do you see this, this anger for wanting more? Now, Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised you can now dismiss your servant in peace. You can now let me go. You can let me die. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. And that is enough for me. The world does not know a contentedness like that. We, the society pushes for contentedness. We push for satisfaction. We push for peace. But we think it's found in getting more, 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 more. Simeon shows that satisfaction and contentedness is not getting in more, more, more but in seeing and knowing Christ. Now, it, 
It reminds you of the parable Jesus tells later in Luke about the merchant who has all this money, but when he sees a pearl, sells everything he has just so he can gain it. And though in the world's eyes he becomes poor, he holds something that is of more value than anything else. Now, there's two things I need to talk about when I say contentedness. When I say contentedness, I'm not saying laziness or apathy. Those are very different things. Apathy says, I don't want to try because I don't want to fail. Apathy is motivated by fear or doubt or insecurity. I'll never try anything because I don't need to because I'm never going to amount to anything. That's very different from contentedness. Contentedness is a willingness to say that even if it takes me 60 years, and even if I have to push through hardship, and even if things don't go my way, I don't care because I know what I have is worth it. Even if I need to push for this and no one else wants me to, it's worth it because what I'm getting is worth more than anything. So contentedness is not laziness. The second thing about contentedness is it is not pie in the sky. It's really easy for those of us who are Christians, you hear something like that, Jesus is worth everything. And you're like, yeah, I, okay, he's worth everything. But the truth is we face incredible difficulties. We have dreams that we've held for our entire lives that often don't come to be whether they be marriages, whether they be children. Maybe they be for jobs or houses. We've got these things that we desperately long for, and it hurts so bad because we're still waiting for them. And we feel disillusioned or angry. And so someone says, Jesus is worth all those things. It's so easy to be like, well, yeah, of course he's worth all those things. But deep down in our hearts, if someone told us you could have that thing you wanted, if you just let go of Christ, many of us would do it. Because the pain is so great and the waiting has been so long. But the truth about the Christian faith is there's this mystery, and it has been tried and tried again throughout history, that though there is difficulty, and though we don't get everything we want, and though life doesn't always come out the way we look for it, if we give all we have for Christ, in the end, we do not come out wanting. We do not come out lacking. There's the, the long history of the church of martyrs who've given up fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children, lost them to the sake of the gospel, who've lost their jobs, who've lost their homes, who've lost their culture and their land for the sake of the gospel. And it's painful, and it's difficult, and it's real, but God is still worth it. And there is a contentedness that goes deeper than any of those hurts, pains, and longings that when we have Christ, we truly have everything because he is worth more than anything. So the reason I love Simeon is not because he's this amazing, huge character. He's not Peter. He's not Paul. He doesn't show up throughout the pages of the Bible every other, every other chapter. He shows up for a few small verses. But what I love about him is in those few small verses, he helps us to redefine what significance looks like in Christ. Significance, and to be a significant person, isn't being the president on the back of the Jeep, giving the speech that everyone loves. It's not being the wealthy businessman who can do whatever he pleases and be a benefactor to any cause he wishes. Those are great things. But in the kingdom of God, those are not the significant things. Significance in the kingdom of God is found in faithfulness to him over a long period of time. Significance in the kingdom of God is found in being dependent upon him and his body for our existence and our work. And significance is found in being content with him even if it means we have to face large-scale adversity. If I can invite the band back up, we're just going to close.
The reason we're talking about Simeon 2,000 years later isn't because he was a bigwig who changed everything. The reason we're talking about Simeon 2,000 years later is because he had this ability to say, guys, don't look at me. Look at him. He's the significant one in this story. And in all of our stories, in all of our lives, we are but secondary characters to one true character who makes the difference. Christ. He changes things. He is still living and active, working in our families, our work, our jobs, our societies, and our relationships. And he is moving. And our significance is, being able to f- is found in being able to step aside and say, have you guys seen him? And have you seen how he is changing everything we know? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are living, present, and active. Jesus, your life, death, and resurrection do not sit in the pages of history, but continue through and are breaking in today in every area of life. You are active in our lives. And I thank you that when we hear this word significance, we don't need to be afraid, thinking we'll never amount up to it, nor do we need to be puffed up saying, I've got to be this, otherwise I lose my value. But when we hear this significance, we know that significance is redefined around who you are, around faithfulness, dependence upon you, and contentedness in who you are. Would you help us to point to you in every area of our lives in the most faithful way we can? Amen.